Hi, my name is Charlie Howell. I was a writer for Scooby-Doo for a long time, and you're listening to podcast named Scooby-Doo. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah! Hey gang, and welcome back for another installment of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that gives you a behind-the-scenes peek at the making of this 50-year franchise of monsters, mysteries, and meddling kids through commentary and conversation. I'm your host, Mike Josick. Thanks for joining me. So in this episode of the podcast, we're going to be going into part two of my conversation with comic book writer Mark Russell. Mark is probably best known for having written the Flintstones series, which came out in 2016 and 2017, and has actually garnered three Eisner nominations. It is a wonderful, clever piece of satire that I think everybody should read. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out, go find it in collected form, buy it digitally, you seriously will not regret it. This was one of the high points of the Hanna-Barbera Beyond line that came out in the first wave. And Mark actually has a second wave book as well, which is Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles, the last issue of which dropped today, uh, June 6th, 2018, for anybody who's listening to this in the distant future. I actually grabbed my copy of uh, Snagglepuss number six on the way home, grabbed myself the Howard Porter cover, Nothing against Ben Caldwell, but I just really dug that Snagglepuss on the stage bowing. Howard Porter actually drew the original short story that Mark Russell had written. It was an eight-page short that appeared in the Suicide Squad Banana Split special when they were doing the DC Hanna-Barbera crossovers. While Mike Fian did the regular uh, line art for the actual Snagglepuss miniseries, uh, I just thought it was kind of a nice little bookend to see Howard doing the cover, having kind of originally initially introduced the character visually to the world so ben caldwell's covers all of ben caldwell's covers on the series have been magnificent but as far as what i wanted for my collection i i grabbed the howard porter anyways that's just spinning in circles that way lies madness in part one of my interview with mark we talked about the flintstones primarily took a kind of a deep dive on that book and talked a little bit about the process a little bit about how mark to work with artist steve Pugh. in part two we switch it up we talk a little bit more about snagglepuss similar things uh, working with mike fian process of developing the idea where it came from the genesis some of the difficulties and more interesting aspects of writing about a southern gothic gay playwright who happens to be a pink mountain lion in 50s mccarthy era america but just before i get into actually running the audio on the interview there's a couple things that i wanted to take care of quickly uh first off in last week's intro to the episode i referred to mark also wrote a comic book called prez for DC Comics. It's about a teenager who becomes president. Another book totally worth checking out. Uh, it ran six issues. You can find it in Trade Collection. If you like anything else that you've seen Mark write, you should check this one. You should track this one down. 
But when I had referenced it in the intro, I had said that it was a, a 60s DC comic book. And I mean, Mark even said in the audio of the interview that it was from 1973, created by Joe Simon. And I just, my professional pride wouldn't let it go. It's been bothering me since it came out a couple of weeks ago. I needed to just make that correction, to make that retraction. I am aware it came out in 1973. I was born in 1973. I, I share something in common with this book. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think it might have come out in August of 1973, which is really close to my birthday, so... But I digress. That was the first thing I wanted to take care of. Secondly, one of the features of the Snagglepuss comic book is that after the first issue, there was a backup feature. After the main story, the main Snagglepuss story, there was uh, a short little feature in the back that was Sasquatch Detective. Not a Hanna-Barbera property. I was kind of unsure why it was there. It was entertaining. Uh, it was written by Brandy Stilwell and illustrated by Gus Vasquez. It is fun, but I just didn't understand why it was there. It, if it was another Hanna-Barbera property, it might have made some sense. So since I forgot to ask Mark in the interview, I had actually sent him an email uh, shortly afterwards and asked if he could just fill in that blank for me. And he sent back a message which he said I could read in the intro for this episode. So I'm going to do that right now. Mark replied, in answer to your question, they told me before the first installment hit that Sasquatch Detective was going to be a backup feature for following issues of Snagglepuss. At first, I was a little nervous about how the tonality would match up, but as it turns out, I really liked the comic. It's really very funny. And what's more, because Snagglepuss can be so dark and unrelenting, I think it works very nicely in a pairing with Sasquatch Detective, which is lighter and goofier. So you can read the comic and walk away feeling like maybe the world is not crumbling around you. Well put, Mark. I agree. I think I think Sasquatch Detective is a fun little backup feature. And anyways, I just wanted to get some clarification on that. Thank you so much, Mark, for responding outside of the interview. And I don't really have anything else to talk about. So I'm going to wrap it up here in the intro. I'm going to let you guys get to the audio, get knee deep in some Snagglepuss conversation. And as usual, I will see you on the other side. So sit back and enjoy part two of my conversation with comic book writer Mark Russell. Oh, what a joyful day to frolic and play. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? So, Snagglepuss, finally, moving on. You said this was something that was brought to you? This was not something you specifically sought out? Yeah, right. My my editor came up with the idea based upon, again, my, my Facebook. Oh, right. Yeah, the posts, yeah. Uh, so, But then, yeah, so I just cobbled together a pitch. It had got approved, uh, and I didn't really have the story yet. I just kind of had the the tonality. But but I think once you kind of realize that these are gay men living in the art scene in the U.S. in the 1950s, the story then, you know, or what what the import of this would be, kind of becomes kind of obvious. Uh, you know, they, they would probably be targeted by you know the government, possibly the House of American American activities, to be drafted into the culture wars and the uh, propaganda war between the U.S. and Soviet Union at that time. Well, there are definite similarities. I mean, you have a certain style of wit and humor that does kind of carry forward. At the risk of making a really bad pun, Snagglepuss is an entirely different animal here. Like, it's the the storytelling... Well, I suppose with the Flintstones, each issue sort of had, this is the thing that we're covering, whereas Snagglepuss yeah. is more of like an episodic rollout. Yeah, the the Flintstones was, was meant to be, yeah, like, a, like each... 
each issue was a self-contained story, whereas the Snagglepuss tells one overarching story for the entire six-issue run. And it really is much more, it's, it's a much darker contemplation of the plot. You know, it's much more intimate of a story and much more much more depth into the personality of the characters and their, their backstories. So to me, it, felt, it feels more like a, like a novel, whereas Flintstones is more like a picaresque or sort of like a satire. Snagglepuss is more like a novel. So much of Snagglepuss takes place in that 50s McCarthyism period. Were you already really familiar with that, or was that something you had to do like a deep dive on? Yeah, I was pretty familiar already, and uh, there were some touchdowns of the uh, the Cold War I, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to include in the story. But I still had to do research to you know, figure out if the dates worked, if, you know, and some of them I had to fudge a little on, but, you know, in terms of, like, the arms race with the hydrogen bomb and how it, you know, worked in tandem with the uh, the HUAC hearings and uh, and also the dates for, like, the, when the Stonewall first opened and, you know, and all, and all these sort of cultural points converging at the same time. And uh, when you look at the, the 50s in New York, especially, like, Broadway, it's this period of incredible creativity. There's all these sort of like the birth of cool and jazz and there's, you know, television and there's, you know, the, the angry young man movement and all the Southern Gothic plays and, and novels. So it's this period of intense creativity happening in the United States at a period of, of sort of intense fear and, and conformity where, you know, everyone's worried about communists and subversives. And everyone's trying to present themselves as living this idyllic suburban Amer- all-American life, and so it's really about this conflict and about like why it's important to not allow the subversives to be swallowed up by the fear of and conformity that this sort of atmosphere creates. I love the line in the classroom when they're getting that example about the apple and the half-eaten worm in the apple being an agitator. And the kid puts up his hand and he says, what represents the communists in this analogy? (laughs) Yeah. It it just, I mean, it was, I didn't know where it was going, but I did not expect it to kind of just cap off with that, to punctuate that. It's kind of like uh, about how these, uh, you know, demagogues don't really think through their own ideology. Yeah. Like, just come up with these really good sort of sound bites or these, these things that sound good on a placemat or, like, a TV ad. But they haven't really thought through the, the natural consequences of what they're saying. So any, and you see this a lot with, like, Trump and his supporters, where any like slightest question or, you know, any sort of, like, question about, like, well, what then or what if this happens completely throws them off. They have not thought this through other than the immediate, like, explanation of how this satisfies their emotional need to, to look strong or to be tough. And then, but then you talk about like the real world implications of trying to build a wall on a, on a uh, border that's mostly river uh, <laughs> or what happens to the Americans that are trapped on the wrong side of the wall. So you can't just build it right there. You know, it's like any sort of like question or follow up is like, leaves them completely flummoxed. Wasn't there something about having a transparent wall too, so that you could see the people on the other side trying to get over? Yeah, or maybe the idea is they'll get a running start to cross the border, then they'll smack you <laughs> the wall. Yeah, who knows? I could be completely reading into this or reading it wrong, but I feel like even though the whole bedrock thing was sort of bigger in a way, those stories were definitely less intimate, except for a few moments, like I pointed out. Uh, with Snagglepuss, I mean, you're playing with this big part of history, and the scope, again, seems very big, but the story itself feels very intimate. Yeah, they're, they're really kind of about two opposite things in a way. The Flintstones is about how our lives impact the world. 
and Snagglepuss is really much more about how the world impacts our lives. So that's it's about, nice, uh... <laughs> right. It's about how the events of the world, which we have no control of, affect the way we live as, indi- as individuals and how it destroys our individual relationships, as opposed to the Flintstones, which is about like how our personal attributes, our greed or our short-sightedness or our, uh, our pretensions sort of ruin the world at large. I was doing a, a quick reread just before we got on here to chat, and you have the very obvious parts of the book, which are Snagglepuss's play, which are being rehearsed and performed. But then I was kind of noticing some parallels with how the writing is in the rest of the book and how some of that is portrayed, which also feels kind of like a play. There's a feeling of melodrama to it. It's, it's like there's a just enough of a lack of naturalism to it that it feels performed again i'm wondering is that purposeful am i again reading into it well there uh there is definitely a a sense that what's happening outside the theater in the world is also a form of theater there's even a line where you know one of the characters is talking about how he became disillusioned with mathematics because he realized that ultimately all even math is floating on a sea of assumptions and that he realized how liberating that was because it means that the whole human race is unmoored and everything we do is theater, and there's no such thing as truth, only usefulness. And so you can make up whatever you want and force it to be true. And you know, this is kind of the, the seed of the political darkness that, that stands behind all totalitarianism. And yeah, and so it's about when you create reality as theater in the world, it destroys people's ability to, you know, be, you ultimately have to sacrifice people's characters then. So there's this sense of, like, there's a play going on within a play. The play been going on is Snagglepuss's play that he's rehearsing, A Dog's Life. And it's inside this greater play of, like, the um, the Cold War, where everyone's trying to look strong, everyone's trying to look in control and united, and forcing everyone off stage who doesn't conform to that image. And that was the, the set theory sequence that you referenced earlier? Exactly. Yeah, just read that issue today. <laughs> that character is, uh, hopefully I don't, this doesn't get us sued, but that character is, is based on Herman Kahn, who some people theorize was the uh, the influence for Doctor Strangelove. He was okay. this, this guy who was really big into. Um, he worked for the Rand Corporation and came up with set theory, or he worked with set theory and, and or no game theory. I mean, and he was one of the architects of our mutually assured destruction strategy with the Soviet Union. I love his description of the testing of the, the 15 megaton bomb and how basically saying that stupidity pays off in the end. Yeah, that that stupidity gives you an advantage in game theory. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the wild damn theory of negotiation, where if somebody asks you for a dollar, you're going to tell them no way. But if they say, give me a dollar or I'm going to shoot myself in the head, uh, you might give them a dollar just because you're afraid that they're crazy enough to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, being nuts or stupid kind of gives you an edge in negotiation. And that's his that's his theory that, if, you know, even though there's no way that building these stupid shelters and doing all this, you know, dumb stop, duck and cover stuff would ever save anybody in the event of a nuclear war. It's still important for us to do it. Because it convinces the Soviets that we are stupid enough to imagine that we could survive a nuclear war, which in their mind means that we're more likely to push the button, which means that they'd better give in and give us the dollar or we'll shoot ourselves in the head. That's such a great image, too, with the fallout shed. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that shed stopping anything? I don't think that shed would stop a bear attack, much less a you know nuclear blast. 
Is that based on something real, the Fallout Shed? Uh, I kind of made up the term Fallout Shed, but it's okay. just, but, it, but, but that is a real thing, a real phenomenon. Like all these these shelters that were promoted, and like the idea that like Manhattan was going to build like these these shelters underground to house the population in the event of nuclear war. By the time they even came up with these ideas, or the government, U.S. government was promoting them, it was already clear that we were you know we were dealing with hydrogen bombs with such megatonnage that these would be utterly worthless against any sort of nuclear attack. It was just the idea, A, to make people think that they could, you know, give people confidence that they could, you know, we're still the masters of their own fate and they could survive. And B, to tell the Soviets that we thought we could survive a first strike. I love those old, the newsreel footage and stuff and the, the educational films where they have the kids hiding under their desks and stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're utterly worthless. But it gives you a sense of doing something, yeah. Right, exactly. So Bedrock, Bedrock was clearly, you know, we talked about the world building of it because it was a fictional world and you had to kind of populate it and, and, and work it into the story that you need, the way you needed it to. But in Snagglepuss, you're dealing with the real world and you're dealing with real history. So what were some of the difficulties, if any, kind of developing that world, populating that world and working with real events? Well, because I was working with real events in the real world, I wanted to get as many of the details factually accurate as possible. It wasn't always possible. I had to sort of fudge on some of the dates or on some of the, the, the details to tell the story I wanted to tell. But yeah, it made me much more um, careful about doing the research and, and figuring out how this would have affected the timelines of the events as they happened. And also uh, made me really think of how they these fictional characters would operate you know, would would interact with people who actually existed, people who we know how they were and, and what sorts of things they, what their style of speech or what their their thoughts were. So I really had to sort of be much more careful about merging the two. And what about like choosing the Hanna Barbera characters that you used to populate it? Yeah, well, that was one of the weird things when I got the project because I, you know, I, I, you know, they knew very, from the outset what sort of book I was writing, especially you know having read the Flintstones, they knew what this could is potentially troublesome book but you know to their credit the, what dc came back with was well could you use more hanna-barbera characters can you throw more in and so yeah i, I, I picked obviously snagglepuss has a background in theater so you, making him a playwright was an obvious thing and then huckleberry hound also seems to you know be of that sort of southern gothic ilk but i thought that Augie Doggy seemed like somebody who'd be, be a natural for playing the role of sort of an up-and-comer, somebody who was young and, and wanting to, like, learn how to write and looking for a mentor. And Peter Potamus, because he wore that safari hat, always looked, he looked sort of like, like a director to me, like somebody who'd be on stage, like, shouting at people and never happy with anything. Yeah, so it, it just was kind of like what people, what their sort of attributes were in the Hanna-Barbera world, what I thought, how they thought those would translate into a the theater dynamic. Did you have to go back and watch like old episodes to sort of get a feeling for the characters, or did you just? I did watch a few, but they were, you know, they weren't really helpful. They, you know, because the, the story I'm telling is utterly, you know, the characters aren't really like anything like in the story. No. Uh, and the, the stories are obviously completely different, so they weren't very helpful. They were more just like about like like seeing what the characters look like. Speaking of how characters behave, Snagglepuss has a very distinctive style of speech, unique even. What do you hear when you're writing the uh, the character? Yeah, and I don't really, when I'm writing the character, I don't really hear the cartoon Snagglepuss in my, my head. What I hear is more like, uh, like I said before, the Tennessee Williams type of uh, overeducated, tragic Southern gentleman of the arts. Sort of like uh, a man who puts things as delicately yet as uh, outrageously as he can. 
I felt like you must be hearing something else because while a person could kind of read it and hear it in their head in that Snagglepuss voice, there were certain patterns that just didn't sort of fit. And it did, I did feel more like, like you said, like a Tennessee Williams or yeah, and that's even, really even like a Mark Twain or well, something like just, yeah. If, if you, if you know, you had to describe the book in one sentence, it would be uh, Snagglepuss is Tennessee Williams, <laughs> you know? And, and so, yeah, I really don't, try to like hear in the snagglepuss voice at all i do you know his big two big catchphrases do come up in the series but i didn't want it to be the sort of thing where he's using them all the time because a lot of it is about like how he gets reduced to this two-dimensionality how he starts as this fully realized human being with desires and you know and thoughts and you know this sort of world-renowned wit and writer and how he gets reduced to this sort of cartoon character mountain lion You've gone from a book where, as we discussed, you had your humans and then you had your anthropomorphic characters, but they didn't speak to each other. They didn't articulate to each other. Now you have anthropomorphic characters having very intimate relationships with humans. Yeah, uh, yeah like how, how did that come about or how, how much of a balancing act is that from the writing standpoint? You know, I just had to, I think, I think the, the really good thing about comics is that you get the ultimate suspension of disbelief in whatever world you choose to create at the very beginning, people just go with it. So I knew if I just had animals and humans sort of interacting seamlessly at the beginning and they don't even seem to notice there's anything strange about, or they don't even seem to notice that uh, there's a difference between humans and animals, that if I established that right away, that the reader would just kind of roll with it and, and make the same assumptions. I suppose it's probably more of a challenge for uh, for Mike because he has to draw it. Whereas... Yeah, and really beyond the characters that I put in there that that he knows are animals, all the other animals that, that are in there are kind of completely at his discretion. I mean, he just chooses which other characters, other than the ones with you know the, the main characters, the ones with recurring roles. He chooses uh, which which of the other people to, to turn into animals. With both Steve and Mike, when did they come into the development process for these books? Were you collaborating with them early on before even like the first issues got worked on or? They came in pretty early because they wanted, you know, Marie wanted character designs to be done and also so we could have a conversation about the character design. But before artwork usually starts on an issue, I usually have like two or three in the can already. I remember the first reaction to the, the backup, the Snagglepuss backup. It was kind of mixed. I mean, a lot of people really were curious and championed it and were really eager to find out where this was going to go. And some people were just sort of like, I just don't even want to give this the time of day. It's such a preposterous idea. How are you finding the overall reaction now we're four issues in? Yeah. Are, are you talking about the uh, the eight-page sampler that we originally... Yeah, that Howard Porter drew. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was okay with that because that was kind of the same reaction I got from, you know, the Flintstones. It's like people were like, well, why bother? What, what is this supposed to accomplish? So that, that reaction doesn't bother me at all. And I figure it's better to have that reaction and then have people be pleasantly surprised. Like, oh, this is actually something I might actually want to read. Then go the opposite way where, you know, it's all hyped. Oh, this is going to be amazing. And then people read it and they're underwhelmed. <laughs> So, you know, it was much better to go that way, I think. And the reception for Psychopus has been, been really good. People seem to really get what I'm going for. And I think it's the sort of thing that, sort of like the Flintstones was, it's more of like a, um, the reaction's been more of a slow burn, uh, where it just kind of goes under the radar to begin with, and then more and more, it gets more and more word of mouth. And it's gradually gotten more popular, and has gotten more attention as it's gone on, uh, because more and more people are getting on board. That's got to be satisfying. I mean, much better than going the other way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll take that, uh, that reaction any day. I, I work well with a low bar of expectations. 
It was super weird seeing the Clint Eastwood bit. I think that was issue three. Yeah. And uh, I don't know a lot about Clint's past. And I wondered, is that loosely based in reality or was that a complete fiction? Well, it's a complete fiction, but it does kind of work with the timeline. That's part of the research I did. Like Clint Eastwood was uh, released from the Army in 1952. He was uh, in the Korean War. Although I don't think he actually fought in the war. I think he was stationed on an island or he then went into acting after that. So this is kind of about the lost period between Clint Eastwood getting out of the army, trying to make it as an actor before he got his first role in uh, Gunsmoke. Are there any outside influences on the story? Like considering it's it's something that takes place in the real world, are you getting into like movies or biographies or novels or anything, plays and trying to like incorporate that, weave it? There is, um, I think, the appearance of, at some point in the script, like uh, the appearance of Marilyn Monroe's movie, Some Like It Hot, as sort of make a cameo appearance. And then, of course, there's there's mention of The Crucible, the Arthur Miller play, which is about the McCarthy hearings. But yeah, and, and then, of course, uh, yeah, there's, there's some things I can't talk about because they haven't happened yet. But yeah, there's a little bit of that interweaving of like actual pop culture with the fictitious pop culture of the series. And, like, there's conversations that Snagglepuss has, uh, like, with Dorothy Parker. I love her lines in that first conversation at the table. And I was wondering, were you, like, poaching actual Dorothy Parker lines, or is that you? No, that's me. Um, except there, there was one line that my wife actually wrote where, um, you know, he's like, well, how come you didn't go to that, that job I got you writing for television? She's like, well, I, I, w- I wasn't feeling well, so I called an absinthe. Yeah. That was a, that was a line my, my wife came up with. But, uh <laughs> I came up with all the other Dorothy Parker lines, which, you know, is perhaps a little bit hubristic of me. I think, oh, yes, this will sound worthy of Dorothy Parker. I'll write this down. But, um, but yeah, probably, I think... Probably nobody's old enough to even know who Dorothy Parker is. <laughs> yeah, I just figure that writing is essentially an act of hubris. You know, it's yeah. the assumption that, oh, somebody will want to, you know, read what I have written down, will want to spend their time reading my words. That's, you know, once you cross that line, why not say, well, this is what Dorothy Parker would say. Was there ever a concern? Because again, you're you're dealing with McCarthyism, you're dealing with the 50s, you're dealing with a lot of characters in the cultural space that so many people probably don't know who they are today. You know, you mentioned the the Algonquin Club and yeah, th- this was my big concern going into the series because I I wasn't so much worried about uh, people wanting to read about a um, a Snagglepuss who was like a gay Southern Gothic player. I was more worried about people wanting to read a series set in the 1950s. So it's not really uh, something people are nostalgic for. But that, that's in a way, that's kind of good. Because I didn't want the sort of, like, Stranger Things reaction where it's just this sort of, like, nostalgia porn. Yeah. Oh, that's so – oh, I remember that. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I didn't want that reaction. And so in a way, it kind of helped me to set it in a historical period where all of that sort of soporific nostalgia, the people who have that sort of soporific nostalgia for the 50s, are all kind of dead. They're, and, so, and so people would, would have to – take it seriously on its own merits i mean there are people who have done it like there's uh satellite sam the fraction and, and shaken book takes place in that 40s 50s heydays of television and whatever and i can't think of anything else just off the top of my head but i know they're out there but those tend to be you know like image books <laughs> yeah <laughs> or dark yeah, horse or something exactly. you know they don't tend to be yeah if you're if you're pitching to a big two publisher yeah as a, as a rule you don't want to say oh this is about you know set the, the 1950s and it's about playwrights you know, and, and authors. It's not really a cash register ringer, but it, you know, I, I spoke to Dan DiDio about this and, you know, he backed the decision and he's like, well, it was just the time period it needed to be set in. Yeah. You know, sort of like the, the, 
Batman by Gaslight cartoon. It's like, you know, it's, it's not like a, a time period that's going to be a, an easy sell, but it's, it's just necessary for the work. Is it one of those things where it's like a movie studio is obviously making the movies that they want to make money. There's some are tent poles, but then they also want to throw out a couple of Oscar, <laughs> Oscar bait movies out there. They'll yeah, maybe dark horse. Uh, but you know, I, I think that, um, yeah, yeah. I think the DC takes the sort of long view that like, it's a better, it's, it's important to not only write the things like that are going to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, but the things that create the sort of like bank for the future. These, these properties that are that people are going to be talking about it'll or, stay in print like, for a long time or that will you know um spawn ideas for other franchises and stuff and not to say that snagglepuss is something that's going to stand the test of time and you know live forever but more just sort of like that they're willing to take gambles on things because they realize it's not just about month-to-month sales it's about creating a long-term brand identity that you that people associate with quality not to take away from the actual paper and ink pamphlet reading of it, but I would love to see this as like an animated feature. <laughs> yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? I would, I would totally be behind that. And speaking of gambles, I find it so interesting that right now I think some of the most progressive comics being published are from Archie and from DC Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> yeah, though no, I think that's probably there's probably a good reason for that because you can kind of like get by unnoticed. You can kind of like uh, you're not messing with the crown jewels. Right. Well, I guess Archie is, I think, probably now probably considered a crown jewel based upon how how well they've done with it. I'm curious. uh, I just I noticed in the solicitations that Future Quest is coming to an end. You know, a lot of the stuff that's been running is closing up. Snagglepuss will be closing up soon. Rough and Ready is done. Dastardly and Muttley is done. Do you know how the imprint is doing? Like, is it is it still going to be continuing or are we seeing no idea? I, I have no idea. I know they're doing some more Looney Tunes uh, stuff, but I, I don't really know much about what the future of the Hanna-Barbera line. So you don't have any DCHB stuff after Snagglepuss is done? No, no. I, in fact, I, I plan on taking a break from Hanna-Barbera for a while and doing other things. I have a, a Judge Dredd series. <laughs> Judge Dredd series coming out next month. Yeah, I heard uh, about that. I'm working on that, so that, that'll be fun. Is that coming and, from IDW, or is that coming from... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I need you. Uh, and and then I've got some other things that are going to be announced in the near future. Can't really talk about yet. Fair enough. Uh, with Snagglepuss wrapping up in a couple of months, are you done those scripts? Yeah, those scripts are completely in. Yeah, they're. I'm I'm done writing Snagglepuss. Do you write fast? I mean, you mentioned a couple times about having like scripts in the can. Yeah, I like to. I like to write fast. Uh, sometimes they're just not good enough, and I have to go back and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. But ideally, I write fast when it's really flowing. <laughs> I, I never asked, did you have any, like, did you grow up watching Hanna-Barbera stuff? Was that something that yeah, had an attraction really. to you? Or? I mean, I did watch Scooby-Doo on Saturday mornings like everyone else did. And, uh, you know, I'd watch the Flintstones when I came home from school because right. it was on. I was never really uh, devoted to Hanna-Barbera. And I never really saw any of the old, you know, like 50s and 60s cartoons like Snagglepuss or Huckleberry Harold. Right knew who they were, but I never saw any of those cartoons. Are you of the generation where basically you watched anything that was animated? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I grew up in the, I mean, I was a, a kid, I was a kid in the seventies. So yeah, anything that came on okay, after yeah. school, like amazing Spider-Man, I would watch that. Yeah. Super friends on Saturday mornings, but yeah, that I, it was just pretty much, Oh, it's a cartoon. This is something I should be watching. 
I look at the uh, the landscape now, and and it's just it's ridiculous how spoiled spoiled for choices the audience is. And I remember back in those days, it didn't matter. I mean, it could have been My Little Pony. I probably would have watched it just because it was animated. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you had very few, especially you know before you know VCRs were in every household. And yeah. So you, had, you had three three hours, uh, and three channels to choose from. You know, Saturday morning. <laughs> you know, from like eight to eleven. And that was, and then maybe like an hour when you got home to school. So you had to kind of maximize. If you wanted to watch cartoons, if you were into animation, you, you kind of had to kind of maximize that opportunity. We actually had a, at a certain point, I think it was around like 11 o'clock, CBC here in Canada, they stopped playing anything kind of animated or kidsy and they put on old 60s Star Trek. So after like binging on all these old, you know, G.I. Joe and Smurfs and whatever the heck was, else was out there, we'd sit down and we watch Star Trek before lunch. And it was a great palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, uh, I remember when I was like in first grade, I'd come home from school and there was a, one station that would show these really bad sort of Japanese like uh, science fiction movies or like, you know, sort of monster based movies. Right. And I was fascinated by them. I loved them. Is there anywhere? Do you want to be found online? Do you want to have people yeah. check you out? They, people can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Okay. You don't have a website or anything? No, not really. I just kind of <laughs> social media. Fair enough. All right. That's pretty much all I got. Well, thanks. So, thanks so much, Mark, for joining me for this conversation. Honestly, these two books have been two of my favorite books of the last couple of years. They kind of came out of nowhere. I've just got so much love for them. I'm actually hoping that there's people out there listening to this who haven't read them and can discover them for the first time because they're they're so good. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're right. And thank you, Mike. This has been a real real pleasure. <laughs> And that brings to an end my conversation, part two of my conversation with writer Mark Russell. I hope you enjoyed that deep dive on Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles. And I hope you'll check out that series, uh, as I said in the introduction, issue six of which dropped today. The previous five issues in the series should still be available, should still be findable on comic store shelves. And if you're not a single issue floppy kind of person... It will be collected very soon. I believe DC has a trade coming out. Mark told me July, but looking on Amazon, it says August, so I'm not sure 100% who's right on that one. Either way, I'll keep you guys posted. I've, I've also interviewed Mike Fian, the artist of Snagglepuss, and I was planning on releasing that interview with to coincide with the release of the trade collection of the miniseries. So I'll definitely be keeping you guys up to date on that. If you want some of Mark's work to read while you're waiting for that, go check out Volume 1, Volume 2 of The Flintstones, currently available. Uh, grab them online, grab them through uh, Amazon or your local booksellers. You can also get Prez, which collects the uh, six issues of that series, which came out from DC Comics. There's also his satirical nonfiction, uh, God is Disappointed in You and Apocrypha Now. And just last week, as of the date of this recording... Uh, his Judge Dredd miniseries, Judge Dredd Under Siege, which is coming out from IDW, that hit store shelves, and basically it has Mark tackling Mega City One urban planning with uh, Dredd having to go in and encounter um, the goings-on at Patrick Swayze block. It's all good fun, definitely worth checking out. Uh, all the things that I've listed here are 
well worth your time. And like I said in the intro, I've got Snagglepuss number six sitting a couple feet away from me. Uh, as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to dive into it. Very much looking forward to it. And like Mark said, if you want to track him down on social media, you can find him on Twitter at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Check out his Twitter feed, follow him. Mark's often posting uh, some fun tweets. And I don't know about you guys, but I think this first uh, DC Hanna-Barbera interview has gone well. I really liked the diversion, and uh, we're going to be getting back to regular Scooby-Doo conversations in uh, the next episode where we should be featuring Charles Howell, who was a writer on some early Scooby-Doo series, including uh, mostly the Tom Ruger stuff, uh, 13 Ghosts, Pup Named Scooby-Doo. Looking forward to getting that out to you guys. And if you guys have any thoughts or comments on the podcast, feel free to let your voice be heard. You can find me on Facebook, on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Uh, generally a podcast named Scooby-Doo just search it or at ScoobyDooCast I have a gmail account ScoobyPodcast at gmail.com you can send me an email there's also the Scooby blog the blog named Scooby-Doo at wordpress.com slash ScoobyDooCast and if you get the show off of iTunes subscribe to the show rate the show review the show it really helps get the podcast into the eyes and ears of uh, potential listeners people who haven't found the show yet who might really enjoy it. Uh, I've recently been informed, apparently on iTunes, you if I'm, I'm Canadian, and I can't see the US iTunes reviews or ratings. I can only see the ones in Canada. And uh, I've recently been informed by a little birdie uh, over at What's With You Scooby-Doo, who checked out the American iTunes, and there have been some very, very nice things being said. Uh, Some great reviews, and I apologize for not giving uh, you guys a shout-out before now, but I just haven't had access to them. I haven't been able to see them. I super appreciate it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And like I was saying, if if there's anybody else out there who gets the show off of iTunes, I strongly encourage you while you're there, uh, rate and review the show. It really helps. And on all the social media, like, share, follow, subscribe. As you probably know, word of mouth is the very best tool to getting anybody to pay attention to you. So that pretty much wraps it up for me this time around. Uh, As you guys may have noticed, I'm kind of on the bi-weekly schedule now. So expect the next episode in two weeks. That would be, I think, June 20th. And uh, that's going to be with Charles Howell, Scooby-Doo writer. And I'm looking forward to getting that out there and seeing what you guys think of that. And until then, I guess, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I appreciate uh, each and every one of you for checking out the show and listening to the show. Be sure to check out the next episode in a couple of weeks. And until then... Exit! Stage right! <laughs> Bounder indeed. Figaro, 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 it figures.